Well, thank you to the both of you for being here. This is Melissa Grady. I am the editor-in-chief of the Clinical Social Work Journal, and I'm a very excited about this topic. The title of the article that we're going to be discussing today is There is Just a Different Energy, Changes in the Therapeutic Relationship with the Telehealth Transition. And one of the reasons I thought that this article would be so interesting to feature is because of where we are right now. It is timely and many of us, including myself, who continue to practice are seeing, I am 100% online, I'm 100% telehealth, and I've started with clients during um, the pandemic as telehealth, and I've continued with clients um, during the pandemic. And it is really interesting, the differences and yet similarities in so many ways of what the telehealth experience is, is looking like. So as always, the article that we feature in the podcast will be linked in the show notes and it is open, it is free access thanks to Springer. And so everybody can access the article if you want to learn more and hear a little bit more in depth about the article. But I'm very happy that we have two of the authors of the article here today, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves and tell a little bit more about who they are and sort of how they came upon this topic. So with that, I'll let you all take it away. Okay, and I'll, I'll start. Um, my name is Judy McCoyd, and I am an associate professor at Rutgers School of Social Work. I typically teach the clinical and theoretical classes for the MSW, DSW programs, as well as teach in the PhD program for um, dissertation seminars. But this year I happen to be the interim director for the PhD program. Um, but the bottom line is that I also have generally been um, in private practice since about 1988. <laughs> and like you, I guess, I had to do a quick change. Um, so I've been teaching, I've been an academic since uh, the early 2000s, but had had my private practice before that time. I had always felt very strongly that, that you know, in-person was best. And so even though many people were starting to do some of that e-therapy before the pandemic, I had not been all that interested in doing that. And so when we had to do the big change in March of 2020, uh, changing all of our classes online and changing my private practice into online. Um, that was part of what interested me. And I, I won't get into the study until Laura gets to introduce herself. So I want to turn it over to Laura to introduce herself. Okay. Thanks, Judy. Uh, I'm Laura Curran. I'm also an associate professor at the School of Social Work at Rutgers. Um, and I've also worn various administrative hats at the school and the university. And during this period, I was overseeing some of our academic programming. And I was really interested in understanding what, you know, our students re were reporting back, what was happening in their field education setting. Our field education folks are struggling to, you know, make sense of what was happening on the ground at agencies. And so I was really interested in understanding what was happening in the direct practice world during this time, given that all of our students were out there uh, in the field. I also have been had been somebody who had um, 
was a bit of an early adopter of online education as our school was. And it was during the period where, you know, everyone now had to transition. And so, you know, some of the, I was interested in some of how those relational pieces that we had to kind of make sense of in an educational content a context were also kind of playing out in the clinical context as well. Great, thank you. And um, before we move on to the study, I just wanna make sure that you two have a chance to acknowledge your other co-authors who couldn't be here today. I, I wanna, I do wanna acknowledge um, both Elsa Candelario, who is, uh, oh, Laura, help me out, associate uh, professor of- Professional practice. practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, Patricia Finley, who is who just took on the role, uh, she is a full professor at the School of Social Work, and she just took on the role that Laura Curran was in um, as Associate Academic Dean of Academic Affairs. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sorry, we're all changing titles recently, <laughs> so, <laughs> but but each of them, um, you know, Patricia and Laura really were the people who got the idea rolling at the beginning. So I want to I want to have Laura start with giving kind of an overview because the two of them were really the, the people who started the idea of doing this survey. Yeah. So I think I touched on that a little bit and it was really about, we wanted to understand what was happening. I mean, broadly speaking, we wanted to understand what was happening in the field. We wanted to understand what was happening in practice and we wanted to understand what was happening uh, in the organizational context as well. And so at Rutgers, we were fortunate that we do have um, a uh, large uh, mailing list of folks who, uh, who have been connected to the school in some way, often through continuing education. And that allowed us to access a really large um, survey database of folks uh, who are practicing, who are you know, licensed social workers in the state. And so that is where we got the idea from. We wanted to know what was going on and we had a way to contact and survey people. Uh, and so the survey was certainly partially about telehealth and relationships, but it was also about the overall context of what was happening during COVID and how people were making sense of it and adapting to it. So what you were really sounds like you were trying to do is just kind of get a sense of, hey, everybody out there, you're you're doing things differently now. And what what's that like for you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Great. And so and that say a little bit more about um what what kind of questions specifically you were asking within the survey and and then um a little bit more detail about the study. So Laura, I'm gonna throw off to you for the overall survey and then I'll take sure. on what we did for this. Sure, so in the overall survey, we were looking at uh, everything from kind of what, how, how COVID is impacting services. So we looked at organizational issues. So that was one of the big, big piece of like, how is your agency for those who are employed in agencies, not everybody was in the survey, but what is the organization doing? So what is the organization doing in terms of services? How have service systems changed for folks? We also asked questions about um, safety measures as well. So that was one, the organizational context was one big um, basket of questions. The second large basket of questions we asked were about presenting 
um, asked, presenting needs. You know, what was happening? What are you seeing amongst the folks you're serving? What are they asking for? How have those asks changed in relation to the um, pandemic? Uh, then we asked about telehealth. So that was another large bucket. What's being used? How are you changing your practice? Um, and we did have a subsample, uh, and Judy will talk about that more, of uh, folks who both are were in agencies, but then also a, a subsample of folks who were in private practice. And then finally, we looked at questions of provider burnout um, and resilience as well. How are, how are you know, the providers doing during this period? So it was a large kind of over, overarching descriptive study, but we, we focused in on a few of what we thought in a deeper way were the most salient questions. And we ended up, as Judy will talk about in a moment, we ended up getting some really rich data, which you don't, you know, you don't always do, uh, with surveys like, you know, like a large scale surveys like this, but we actually uh, ended up with some really um, deep and rich and complex findings, I think. Right. And, and it was in that analysis, um, as Laura was saying, the, the big overall survey was aimed in these multiple ways, kind of four, four different foci. And when we started doing the analysis, we were surprised by how much qualitative data we got from the, the survey because we weren't really asking for it. What we, we said was, if you want to explain your answers, here's a text box. And so it wasn't even that we were asking for a whole lot by way of qualitative data. It was mostly, you know, explain your answers to us. And boy, they did. <laughs> and particularly our question, there had been a question that was, do you think that the transition to telehealth was just as good, worse, better? Um, you know, and, and basically it was really just like a Likert scale kind of question. And we got reams and reams of narrative. Um, in those text boxes. And so that's really what prompted this particular study. The overall survey is, is in, a, in a different article, but, but this is really almost a secondary analysis because we were so surprised by the, the rich data that we got about people saying, you know, I can't answer whether this is just as good or worse or better. I would have told you it would be terrible, but it's working or, you know, attendance has actually improved. So we heard this variety of, um, we, we heard, well, we, we didn't actually hear, but we read their, their narratives and they were really very much more extensive than we expected. And so that's why we did this study, because we wanted to go into the data that were telling us more about how what their actual experience of the therapeutic relationship was. We hadn't actually asked them that, but they gave us a lot of information about how they um, viewed that therapeutic relationship, both kind of assessing it as well as how they in, had to adapt. They also talked a, a bit about the therapeutic frame. Um, few actually used that language, but that's what they were describing. And so that's what made particularly, well, the, the group of us go back and say, we need to look at this. And so Laura and I were really the, the people who did that qualitative analysis of that data. And we basically had gotten about 448 of our 1,490 respondents had, had given us extra, you know, had given us the narrative data that, that we then went back to reanalyze um, in a secondary way because we really wanted to understand, wow, if they, if they care enough to, 
to give us all paragraphs on how they feel about whether this was good, bad, or indifferent. Um, we wanted to be able to look at that. And, and it did turn out that there was an awful lot there about the therapeutic relationship and the therapeutic frame. And so I'll stop at that point. <laughs> So just to clarify, it sounds like you weren't specifically asking for them to share their experiences and talk about what telehealth has been like for them, but just by prompting the question, is this good, bad, or the same, that created this surge of uh, sharing in the open text box where they wanted to really expand on that discussion. So yeah, it sounds like they had a lot to say and they were they wanted to share it. So it's great that you were able to take that information and really move it forward and come up with some of the ideas that they were so eager to share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, what was what, and I don't know whether we want to get into our findings at this point, but I think the big well, sure. Go ahead. Sure. <laughs> give us the punchline. Yeah. Well, and the punchline is sort of the title, right? Um, that it is a, a more remote experience, but it's also there's this different energy, and the energy became really the surprise, um, the surprise in the data. Um, so, so people were really talking about the idea that they really didn't expect this to work. And yet they found that it did. And, you know, they said really positive things about, you know, the people turn up more, the attendance is better. I can see into people's homes. I can, you know, see their facial expressions better. So they had that positive side, but they also kept saying, but it feels different, you know? And so some talked about it feeling more distant and yet they were still connected. And others talked about this different energy, like the people, many people talked about the energy in the room. and then almost caught themselves and pulled back from the energy in the room while it's actually in the computer. Um, and again, I think I want to leave some of that for Laura to, to speak about, but th- those were definitely the big takeaways that the, that the energy was different, that the, the remoteness, um, that it felt like a, a distance or a distancing. And, and we really, kind of took that to understand that through the energy lens eventually. Um, but the other piece of it was that they were also pleasantly surprised about the ability to connect, to do that therapeutic work in a place that doesn't fit our typical thoughts about therapeutic frame or the way many of us were trained to deal with uh, therapeutic frame. Interesting. And do you know, I mean, I don't, I don't, you, since this question was sort of really just prompted by the a, a sort of a separate question, but do you have any sense of how many people based on either this survey or, or what was in the data that how many people are actually tracking the effectiveness or tracking any outcomes? Mm-hmm. Or was this more of a subjective experience that they were describing rather than oh, I can see my clients meeting their treatment goals at a different rate, or I can see my clients when I give them a standardized assessment, I can really see the difference between um, 
before when I was in person versus after, or again, was it, were, were these assessments that it's kind of the same and it's working based on objective measures, or were these more their subjective experiences of being in this relationship with the client? I, I think these were largely subjective impressions of being in relationships um, with the client. Although having said that, you know, it's not entirely clear. So some, there were definitely comments that were there that did address outcomes. The outcomes seemed to be the same in terms of people achieving their goals, but these were not, they were not at the point that they were really assessing this against maybe what would have happened in an in-person or face-to-face therapy. I don't think this was actually administered at a moment in time when we could even kind of expect that of folks. I think what we were focused on and what we pulled out was really that therapeutic relationship. So what they said was working was a therapeutic relationship. In terms of the quote unquote treatment goals, that wasn't as explicit. That's not what they were speaking to. Or they weren't doing measures like the working alliance inventory or mm-hmm. anything like that. This was more of the subjective. Got yeah. it. Okay. Right. And, and that reminds me, I do want to come pop back in here because one of the things I neglected to say was that when we were collecting data, that was really from, um, oh, I have to look back, but May to September, I think. Um, but we ended by September of 2020. This was, we, we stopped our data collection at mm-hmm. that point. So we were really looking at people or getting their data at the point where they were still very much adjusting to this new world. And we, I think, you know, we're, we feel like we're still so much in it, but the bottom line is that those first months from March to September, everybody was just reeling. And so I think that was the other thing that is important about our data. Not only were folks trying to make make these changes on a real practical level, get the computer that they needed and just mm-hmm. manage the practicalities of it, but they were really concerned about how they, how they were able to support their clients at the same time that they were having a really hard time kind of managing their own lives. You know, yeah. many of, it wasn't as much reported in this part of the study, but they talk about the, the difficulties of, you know, they're doing childcare and dealing with their kids online while they have clients who are needing them more often. And it's all in the same living room and trying to deal in that space with their therapeutic relationships. And it's very, you know, there were people who talked about the, you know, that it's hard to keep the therapeutic frame clean when you're, when you're running after a child. Right. <laughs> um, right. And when and, you're, and when your life is now in the, in the picture in a different way, I mean, many people are very careful about what they bring into their office and right. what they show and what decorations are there. And then it all switched so that everybody was in everybody's living room, so to speak. And, right. and, and I know for me, um, I know sometimes when I do my virtual screen in the background, I half my body disappears. It never seems to work as well for me as other people. So I just had to give that up. And now everybody sees the back of my, of my, of my room. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is there, a lot of things shifted, a lot of things shifted. And I know also, people were emailing state boards. Here, I'm in Washington, D.C., and my I was licensed in D.C., but I had clients living in Maryland and Virginia. So then it was trying to 
ensure, and, and it was fine at the beginning, ensure that I was able to see those clients, even though I wasn't, we weren't physically meeting in DC where I was originally licensed. So yes, there were computer issues, family issues, board, social work board issues, and right. all sorts of things that people were juggling. And it would, it would be interesting to see a couple years later, um, how people are feeling if they're feeling the same way. So, so it sounds like, um, I mean, yes, it's working, but felt different is sort of the overarching mm-hmm. theme. And as you think about that, um, what, what would you say are some of the really big clinical implications that you all took away from the fact that it feels different, but yet it's working. So what, what do we make of that? And what should clinicians, students, et cetera, be thinking about that? Well, I, I, I kind of think there are at least two different tracks, probably more than that, but, but certainly the idea of the way we talk about therapeutic frame, I, I'm an older clinician. And so I and had done the, the, the Pennsylvania Clinical Society's, you know, three-year post grad, you know, Institute on Psychodynamic Psychotherapy. So I had really gotten very much steeped in, you know, the blank slate and keeping the frame and all of those sorts of things. And I pretty much moved away from the blank slate um, because I think that there is that need for authentic relationship. But moving from, as you say, that office that that's sort of curated and moving from a space that there aren't interruptions. Um, that frame felt different as a clinician. And, and we saw that in our data too. I, you know, I had to be really conscious as we were doing our analysis, as Laura and I were doing analysis, how much I, I, I was feeling some of that because I had gone through it in my own practice. But it was really astounding aside from the therapeutic frame and those changes. The other piece was this piece about energy that was so, um, interesting to us as because that was the the information about zoom fatigue was coming up but that was not what our clinicians were talking about our respondents were were talking about the the different energy in the room and so some of that seemed to be and i don't think we've mentioned this yet but some of that was about we can't read their body language in the same way that we would or we can't reach out and touch somebody and calm them or help to, to help them to self-regulate. Um, and so, you know, we, we really went down that pathway analytically first, right? What, what, what were the things that were so different from being in person, you know, like reaching out, like seeing that foot that is jiggling um, that you don't see when you're on the, on, on the screen. So those were big clinical implications. And, um, we, again, I think the other <laughs> overview article talks a little bit more about the populations that we felt that, that our folks were telling us this just doesn't seem to work as well. But those clinical implications were very much there too, that there were differences in who we could, how we could meet our clients' needs in, mm-hmm. in the Zoom environment. Mm-hmm. Laura, do you have more to add? Yeah, I think the the issue of um, in terms of the clinical implications, I think um, the preparedness for what it takes to sustain 
the um, the quality of the interaction with somebody in an online environment is important. Um, and that's something that I think has to be addressed, you know, uh, in a really explicit way in training at this point. So, and, and developing some best practices around that, that's gonna be important. There's probably more research mm -hmm. that has to go into that area. And then the second piece is of course around who this works, who, who's this working for and who isn't this working for. And certainly there are some people who, some populations who we know was very clear from our findings and that you hear, hear this other uh, and other research studies around, uh, around both treatment and then just in education as well. You know, for instance, children, this doesn't work very well for, <laughs> for children, right? We're all probably aware of that, but there are other categories of folks too um, that are gonna be important to think about. Is this really the best uh, method of, of serving folks? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, this seems to be here to stay. I can tell you all of my clients have wanted to stay online. I don't have a single mm -hmm. one of my clients who want to come back to in-person. They like the convenience. They don't have to park. There's no metro. They can hop in and then go straight to another meeting. And it just, um, you know, it just makes life in many ways a lot easier so I mean, after reading your article and, and again, thinking about my own practice, one of the things I thought about is, it, is if this is different, are we preparing students to work in this way? Now, obviously people who were um, students who were in the pandemic and, and having to pivot and do everything online. And then last year, many students uh, our school had to do a lot of online because there was still a lot of quarantine. But but now many agencies and organizations, federal government around here is a big one. Everybody's slowly moving back to being more in person. So what do we do about that? How do we, do we know what it, I mean, it sounds like you know it's different, but we don't really know what is different. So then how do we prepare our students to be this flexible practitioner for being in person or not? And how, what are we doing in social work education or postgraduate training programs to really prepare the next generation of social workers who are going to be living in this context, I think? And especially now with the um, interstate pact potentially coming through, for those who don't know, there is some language that's out now for public comment to try and do something that psychology has done that allows states to or jurisdictions because dc is a jurisdiction allow jurisdictions to sign on to a pact that if you are licensed in one of the jurisdictions and you're part of this pact you could see a client in another jurisdiction without having to go through the licensing board um, you're still responsible to follow the laws of that other state, but that they're looking to try and make it more flexible so that if a client moves or you have a college um, student who's going back to school, that you're able to still see that person. So I think, you know, there's a lot of movement towards making this be more of a permanent option. Not everybody will take it, but option. So it's a long-winded question to basically say, so what are we doing right in terms of preparing people and, and what should we be thinking about 
whether we're practicing supervisors in an agency and we're, we're supervising new grads or we're faculty who are teaching or we're instructors at training institutes because there's a lot of places where people are getting training. And I'm just wondering if we're, we're targeting the right things in these trainings. So I think, you know, there are many things that have to be done. One is that students do need exposure. First of all, students need exposure to this, you know, as part of their training, whether or not, um, you know, they choose to go on and, and practice telehealth, but it's, it's just part of the practice landscape now. So, you know, I, the train has left the station. Most people will have some type of telehealth practice, even if they're at agencies at this point. So um, developing a standard set of best practices is going to be important in continuing research and more funded research for this type of um, practice. I think there is an assumption that it's working, but we do need um, more funding and comparative studies to look at outcomes. It also may be certain types of, you know, there are a lot of questions. Perhaps this is better suited for certain types of uh, modalities or certain types of interventions than others. And again, we have, a, we certainly know that some know from practice wisdom that this works well with some populations and not others. But again, that's another question to look to look at more uh, systematically. And then finally, access to technology, right? So there is still an issue around who has, you know, access to technology. That was definitely an issue in our findings. So, you know, this may, does not necessarily work well with populations that don't have access. Or if you think about folks, older folks who may not be technologically as savvy or even, uh, you know, able to, uh, you know, both access and being able to manage technology. So those are all the questions that we need to be talking about in our training of students and, and, and focusing some research on, because this is certainly a very large, um, it's, it is a very large part of the clinical practice landscape moving forward. So we really have to think about all those questions. Yeah, and I think, I think the access to technology is a real uh, social justice issue Mm -hmm. um, really, um, both age, um, as well as income and being able to access and, and or, or urban and rural, mm -hmm. but also, um, people who are living with multiple, um, family members in very small spaces and, right. um, do they have the privacy? And then what impact does that have if they're really not able to fully invest or fully engage in the in the therapy or service delivery, whatever that might be, because of concerns. Maybe for some people, they don't feel comfortable sharing all that's going on within the household because there are too many people in the background. So I think it's, I think that absolutely, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I, I do think this has become a real um, issue of equity or our society as we think about, as you said, the train has left the station, but not everybody's able to get on that train. And right. then what do we do about the people who are still standing on the platform who aren't really able to access? And, and in many ways it's made mental health services more accessible mm -hmm. yet for some, for some, for some. For some it hasn't. And, right. and in social workers, I think as we think about structural inequalities and think about access to services and marginalized populations, just so core to our mission as social workers, I think those conversations have to be part of 
this broader issue of, yeah, telehealth, it's great. It's here to stay. Here we are. We're moving. We've got this packed. Everybody's great. But yet, again, there's a lot of people that are left on the platform, um, mm-hmm. not just because of their age, um, but because of issues of inequalities. Yeah. And, I, and I want to say that I think that is something I'm just going to add on to Laura's um, explication of what we're doing in education. The other big area is, is the area of ethics around mm-hmm. this telehealth area, because um, of course, there's the, you know the social justice piece of that is one area of ethics that we have to address. But just even the ethics of, of privacy and you know protecting people's confidentiality because mm-hmm. sometimes they don't think to protect it for themselves, um, and yet that doesn't mean that we're off the hook for you know losing that confidential space that we used to be able to provide when people came into an office or something. Um, Although there, I, I do have to say there was at least one person who wrote about, you know, now clients not only have the, um, the break from not needing to turn up for an office, but they don't have to worry about running into their neighbor or their boss or something like that in the waiting room. So, you know, you, you wonder about the confidentiality, but that whole point of um, having somebody else in the household that might hear what it is that you're saying. Um, we, we see that a lot for adolescent clients. I've seen it for, um, I work a lot with couples. And, and so I've seen it a lot where one of the people is talking with me and then finds that the partner is, you know, somewhere in the vicinity, even mm-hmm. though they were supposed to have private space. And yeah. so even, even those kind of very um, practical issues are clinical issues that we are talking to our students about and really saying these are these are ethical issues that you have to attend to as well and and since many of our students are on the younger side and very much digital natives and don't think necessarily about the the problems of technology um we i think there are many of us on the clinical faculty who do bring that in and say hey we really have to think about this in in an area of, of how does confidentiality particularly um, play out in these technological spaces. That was a big deal mm-hmm. as um, people were changing, you know, again, our data came from a very uh, snapshot period of time, right, as mm-hmm. people were trying to change. And so you talk about the interstate pact, but the other thing that had been going on at that point was really, um, you know, there were concerns about about licensing, but people were also just kind of hopping on FaceTime or places that did not have any kind of HIPAA protection or, or privacy setting. And so that's another piece. You know, people are, are we have to tell our students, now that Facebook is not the appropriate place to be talking to people, mm-hmm. um, your clients. It, it really, you need a HIPAA compliant, you know, platform to see people. Um, and, and that was sort of a surprise for some folks. And, and what was interesting is that in our data, people were saying, oh, we've got concerns about this. Is this HIPAA compliant? Are, we're being told yeah. to do it this yeah. way, but we're not sure if this is ethical. Um, I just want to circle back to one more thing with the, the question you asked a little while ago that I, I think Laura addressed, but the, there was an implication about um, were they, you know, checking the, the working alliance or, or, or checking how their work was um, being effective? And, and they weren't doing that, but they were asking questions about that. Quite a few of them were saying, you know, we don't know 
if this works as well, and yet we're just kind of doing it, and it's not ethical. And and I think it's important that our, that those respondents were were asking those kinds of ethical questions, even at a time that they were under such stress. Mm-hmm. So I just yeah. wanted to circle back to that. Piece. Yeah, and that that's really the next step. And I, I mean, people are engaging in this work now, but that's really the next right. step to see is is this as effective as folks are suspecting it may be. Um, I also, I want to just address the issue of the compact, because I do think that's an interesting and a complex one. Um, It seems like, you know, one thing we heard is, you know, I can keep my, you know, my client who's now a student in, you know, another state, and this is, this, this is what telehealth um, provides. It's a, you know, continuity of care, which could be a very good thing. It it can also allow you to, um, of course, create more accessible services for folks who may be in states where there are, you know, there are fewer practitioners. So those are all good things. I do think it's important, though, for folks to think about potentially, you know, some of these unintended consequences of telehealth, too, um, and what this will look like if a compact is indeed passed. And one thing folks will want to be thinking about, Judy and I have discussed this, is really how that impacts markets and how that impacts kind of the shape of the profession. We know there's been a huge rise of these kind of for-profit platforms, talk talk therapies, talk space, those types of things. And we hear anecdotally of more and more of our students signing on, more and more people we know, and that could really change the face of clinical practice. And, you know, as we see these kind of conglomerates, we see that in healthcare in general, there are no more solo, you know, MDs, um, the, the, or there are very few of them, or even very few lawyers who, sh- uh, you know, hang their shingles anymore. Um, the combination of telehealth, the compact, as well as kind of these rise of these larger kind of, um, you know, platforms could all also kind of signal a, you know, wearing away of the kind of single solo practitioner. So I do think that's mm-hmm. um, something people should just be thinking about as they, doesn't mean we shouldn't have the compact. It just means that, you know, it's complex. It's not just, you know, I only hear the positives of the compact and like everything, there are going to be some unintended um, consequences too. Uh, So it should be thought about in terms of how this will infect insurance markets, reimbursements, and really the autonomy of professionals down the line. So I think that's an important thought. And then the other thing, or maybe not thought, but important thing to think about. um, And then the other thing I did wanna say, which I'm sure you're aware of is, all the issues with the compact right now and the ASWB exam Uh, and these questions of racial justice, the fact that we have a test that is producing, or we could just say inhibiting, um, uh, you know, our, our folks uh, are inhibiting racial, perpetuating. And, and just to, for our listeners who may not be familiar of what Laura's talking about, there's been a release of data from the Association of Social Work Boards that is the primary administrator for the licensing exams across virtually all jurisdictions, including the licensing exam, along with, we have an LG and um, a licensed generalist practice exam in DC, but Virginia doesn't have it. So there's slight, slight variation, but they, they're really the, the administrator and the creators of these um, licensing exams. And what has recently come out, and this is 
hot off the press. We're, we're recording this on September 1st, and this has been in the last two weeks, I would say, that there has been um, really, really clear evidence that the exam is quite biased in a way that prevents and makes it very difficult for people of color to successfully pass these exams and as a result, limits access to the field and limits um, their ability to apply and join different practices at different levels. And there's a whole backstory there, but that is, that is the, the gist, that we know that this exam has a lot of racial discrepancies and that certain groups do better than others and that race certainly seems to play a factor in those. So that's age, right? That's yeah. age, correct. Yeah. So the racial disparities are really stark when they reach, uh, when they released, when ASWB uh, recently released the pass rates. And using this exam, it would most likely be written into these interstate compacts. And so that's really something to, that the profession will need to take a pause on and, and really think about. Because once this exam is written in, if it's not, revised in some way or suspended for a period of time, it's written into the compact, not only will you have, um, you, you'll just produce even greater uh, racial inequality in terms of the profession and who can not only practice in their state, but now who can practice across lines. Uh, mm -hmm. It just perpetuates a, a large uh, system of racial inequality. So that is, um, that is another big challenge with the interstate compact. Yeah, and I'll say I'll say one other thing, and I know we're not talking so much about this, but I think in telehealth in general, another concern that I have around that is, say you do have a client who moves to another state or, you know, a student who's in another state, if that client goes into crisis, there is not um, somebody physically nearby who has a network of medical professionals or um, crisis doesn't know the crisis services in that particular geographic area. And for somebody who's uh, struggles with maybe self-harm or suicidality or some of the other, or, or using um, substances, there could be some real ethical and safety concerns around somebody being seen 10 states away. Mm -hmm. um, so that is, I think, something that is a concern as we think about telehealth and, and yes, tons of flexibility allows continuity care access to potentially, potentially more providers, but there, there are definitely some downsides. So we are sort of getting towards the end of our time. And I, I want to just ask, um, you mentioned already some of the research questions that need to be posed and other things that we need to be doing. But as you think about this topic or this, your, your research and where you're going next, what would you, what would you say are sort of your big take-home messages that our listeners and readers should take away from your study in terms of clinical practice or research next steps or things that we should be doing or what, where should the dialogue be going next? Well, I think we do need to attend to the energy piece of this, right? And, and it's why we highlighted it. And, and so we, we do think that one of those research questions needs to be about how 
clinicians um, think about that, the remoteness that happens when there's a screen between them and the other person. So you, you just mentioned the, the idea that people could be, you know, 10 states away. But even in a, even if they're only, you know, 10 miles away in the same state, you can't help calm somebody in the same ways uh, through a screen that you can in person. You, you can't use your body in the same way. And so I think we need to know a lot more about how embodied interaction happens when, when it's being done through a screen. It can happen, but, but kind of in the same ways that you were talking about both the ASWB data as well as, as the interstate compact, these things are complex. And there's this unfortunate tendency to want to say, oh, telehealth is all good or telehealth is all bad. And I think the real big takeaway from our study is, you know, we have lots of data that show that there are lots of positives and lots of negatives and, and that we can't just kind of shove it into all good or all bad. And that's very simplistic, but we, we came away with like, let's look at these complexities. We can't push it into these simplistic, yes, it's all good or, or no, it's all bad. There are these places where clinically, and I'll speak to that piece and leave Laura with more of the structural kinds of pieces, but the, the, the clinical piece of how do we make sure that new relationships can be established that are really authentic and, and working in a, the therapeutic ways that people intend them to, because one of the things that many people said was that the, you know, that they were surprised how well the relationship did maintain and how they were able to continue to be effective with the people they'd already started with. But they also commented frequently on how it's harder to start with a new person. It's harder to manage um, relationships where they hadn't had a, a pre-existing relationship before moving to telehealth. Again, those are things that we are teaching our students how to create new relationships in that space. But at the point where we were doing our study, we were really talking with people who were trying to maintain those therapeutic relationships. I, and, and the energy piece of it, because it is very clear that the clinicians are saying it is harder. It's harder to read my client. It's harder to convey the, the support that I want to convey, that that um, diminishment of, of energy, the part that we call energetically taxing, is, is something that a clinician really has to attend to. Maybe they can't stack. One of the things that they talked about frequently was stacking their, their clients because they felt that there were so many clients and the needs were so great that they wanted to respond to those needs. But if that's also so energetically taxing, what are the clinical ethics of of putting that much together and of draining oneself that much. I mean, we, we saw burnout. They were all talking about feeling burnt out. Those things are directly connected. And so if we're thinking about what are some of the clinical implications, certainly that's another area for research. How do we help people think about the energy in the room? Maybe the energy that they don't feel they're getting in a person-to-person -person relationship, how, how do they compensate for the fact that that is different in some ways? How do we define that difference? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think those are the things that stand out to me um, as, as big takeaways. Laura? I think um, I don't have all that much to add. I think the big, the big question on top of all of the, the, 
pieces around the therapeutic relationship, which is what this paper was really focused on, um, also have to do just with the overall effectiveness of, of being in um, you know, a virtual context with our clients and, and looking at essentially you know, therapeutic outcomes as well. And again, there's a, there's a growing literature uh, there. Um, but nonetheless, there's more, there's more work that needs to be done. It's still pretty much in its infancy. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm always encouraging my students to both be a consumer and a producer of research, mm -hmm. even if it's just single system design, where you're looking at what's going on with your clients and trying to understand, um, whether or not what you're doing is, is helping them reach their goals. So I'm, I'm glad that you're all thinking about this as, as part of the next steps, because I think it is really important, not just for telehealth, but for our discipline in general, to be able mm -hmm. to talk about social work practice and social work interventions and the services that social workers in particular provide to be able to really make sure that we're continuing to have a voice at this table around our ability to provide services in this context. And what is that? What does that look like? So. And, and I want to say one last thing about the study. And I, you know, the one thing we, I guess we found um, is just how hard people were working during this time. We, we already mm -hmm. know that, but really how committed um, these practitioners were um, to their clients yeah. and to, you know, even, you know, as they were under all, we were all undergoing our own crises in different ways during that time. And, you know, how, um, committed and ethical uh, these folks were during this period and that they really um, were very focused on their on their client needs. Yeah, I appreciate you adding that piece. I think that's really nice to have ended with. So thank you both so much for your time. And um, I wish you luck with the next round of whatever you're doing. <laughs> and um, thank you listeners. And remember to check out the show notes for links to the article and um, other information about our speakers today. So thank you so much. Thank you.